Welcome to Our Connect Sessions, episode 62. I'm Amelia, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. This week, we're joined by special guest co-host, Aaron Betsky, Dean at the Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture at Taliesin and Taliesin West. Betsky is also the author of Queer Space, Architecture and Same-Sex Desire, as well as Building Sex, Men, Women, Architecture, and the Construction of Sexuality. And we invited him on the podcast today to talk about our recent batch of editorial features devoted to sex and sexuality in architecture. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us back on the podcast. It's been a while. I think the last time you were here was for our episode in, my gosh, that was more than a year ago, I think in like our 15th episode or so about Taliesin West. I hope you're doing well. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thank you. And uh, very happy that uh, Taliesin is still here. We uh, (laughs) did manage to raise our $2 million last year and make all the other uh, changes we did. And we now have uh, applied for our change of control, as it's called, and are looking forward to a visit from uh, Higher Learning Commission next week with all the hope that we will uh, become an independent subsidiary in June and July. Much congratulations. That must have been a huge Thank relief. You. Yeah, a lot of work, but we're getting there. Excellent. So we're, we're here, or we brought you on the podcast today to talk about something completely different, although I'm sure there are many intersections that we can get to <laughs> later. But for our issue in Arconnect on, um, in the month of April, we've been focusing in particular on issues of sex and sexuality in architecture. And we've published a slew of features on this subject, but we wanted to invite you on to discuss them, given your writings and your criticisms about sex and sexuality in architecture dating back to the late 90s or so. Uh, Could you give our audience kind of like a briefing on the kinds of sex and sexuality theory and writings that you were doing at that time and just like frame what your initial introduction to that topic was? Sure, I'll try to do that as quickly as possible. (laughs) When I wrote both of those books, the assumption was that I was describing a particular situation that was changing very quickly. I was changing because by the time I wrote those books in the early 90s, half the students in architecture schools were women, and obviously homosexuality was becoming much more accepted. It's sad to have to say 20 years later, not nearly as much has changed as I had thought. I would challenge anyone to name significant women in solo practice of an international stature in America. Uh, You have Jeannie Gang, uh, you could mention Julie Snow, and maybe you could come up with a few others, but it's really rather astonishing how few there are and how many women drop out in the process of architectural education to the point that, yes, this is still an incredibly sexist discipline. And the same is true for homosexuality. Uh, Name a single out gay man or woman who has won a Pritzker or a gold medal or any of those kind of honors or who is a a significant practitioner. It's really rather astonishing and uh, something that I think should be deeply troubling to all of us. The books that I wrote started from work that I did in interior design. My first teaching job was teaching interior design at the University of Cincinnati. And I found myself faced with the fact that uh, all of my students were women, except for one man who, of course, turned out to be gay. And there was a strong inferiority complex in the sense that interiors were just not as good or as high quality or as important as architecture. And I started wondering about that and developed a theory that became this book called Building Sex that basically says that the man-made world, as we call it, in fact, is made by men. And it reflects the values and standards that we associate in our culture with masculinity. Not to say 
that they are masculine values or standards, but that we associate them with masculinity. Those values and standards uh, are very tied up with aggression, with order, with the imposition of a perfect system on the world, which is perceived as being supine and female in many aspects. Material is seen as being lower and associated with femininity, and order and abstraction and thought are associated with masculinity. Within this gridded order, women are seen to have made their place within it a place that is sensible, sensual, given to the activities of everyday life. It's a rather absurd situation, but it is astonishing how much that duality plays out throughout uh, Western civilization. The result of that is that architecture is not thought of in a very good way by a general public. Architects are because they're big, hunking, masculine stars, with rare exceptions. But architecture is seen by most people as being cold, uncomfortable, imposed by an abstract order, and everything that is outside of people's daily lives. Whereas interiors are seen as being comfortable and familiar and responsive to our needs and our bodies. I looked both at ways in which uh, gay men and women uh, have appropriated urban environments, initially for sexuality and later to create neighborhoods that would be the artificial version of the kind of community entry to who they were denied in other places. And I looked at how men and women who, and this I know was very tricky, we would today would describe as uh, gay or queer or homosexual uh, or LGBTQ, have actually had a great influence in transforming, certainly since the beginning of the 19th century, some of the most significant architectural movements, queering classicism into eclecticism, eclecticism into modernism, modernism into postmodernism. And I pointed out those achievements from the Castro to the work of Philip Johnson, and then made the point at the end of the essay that those achievements were again time-bound because on the one hand, queer culture was becoming assimilated into the mainstream. And on the other hand, so many of those architects who had created a self-conscious queering of architecture for the first time in history. Since then, uh, the Queer Space book has uh, become a bit of an underground classic, if I may say so. And I've been recently asked to lecture on it again. And in going back to that material, I find, in fact, what is astonishing is the manner in which what I thought of as the contributions of queer men and women, all the way from sex in, in public spaces to the particular culture that uh, queer, queer women and men and women developed and the aesthetic they developed, has indeed become uh, so assimilated into mainstream culture. And you asked me to look at some material, including the interview with the artistic director of Cocky Boys. And of course, that's a prime example of a queer space that is no longer recognizable as queer space because it takes place in suburban homes and in absolutely standard environments. So you mentioned the interview with Cocky Boys, and I'm so glad that you directed the conversation into that because there's that dichotomy or that kind of conflict between something in what is 
at one point perceived as a fringe movement of sorts or the other or an other group, then being kind of in a lot of ways uh, insidiously co-opted for a mainstream kind of culture. But in this case, and at least in the Kagi Boys case, the hope in the creative direction of the site is to make overall a kind of sex positive statement through the good design that is used to explain the spaces that where these sex acts take place in. So it's kind of a reinforcing of not necessarily a normalizing of the process, but but certainly a kind of opening up of the okayness and the acceptableness and in the end, the absolute normalcy of these kinds of acts. Yeah, but let's be careful here. We're not talking about high design here. <laughs> no, certainly no. not. But as in the uh, the creative director himself, who we spoke with, Jake Jackson, is concerned in Let's let's call it the high design in a comparative fashion to what else is out there. Yeah, I mean we're talking we're talking West Elm here. <laughs> <laughs> I you know what I don't know if they have any particular sponsorship deals, but I I wouldn't be surprised. And you know, and the other part of that, of course, and and this is what uh, you know my my husband, of course, I had to clear all of this with him. But when I did research to update my lecture and I started looking at some of these sites, what is remarkable is that there is this uh, on the one hand the cocky boys. Corbin Fisher's type side where everything is, I mean, it looks as if everything is literally from West Elm. And so (laughs) I have to say, I was a little cynical in listening to the Cocky Boys interview. Beautifully lit, all that, but it is all from West Elm. And then on the other hand, there's a whole nother side of it, which is the the staged reality show aspect of it. Uh, There are sites like Frat X, I think it's called, and Sketchy Sex, Sketch Sex, Sketchy Sex, something like that. And a whole host of sites like that that are all about pretending that these are just straight people in fraternities or wherever just going at it just because, I don't know. Right, that the whole creative direction is kind of this combination of both a design aesthetic, but also just a media aesthetic in the times of, hey, we have this new thing called reality shows. Let's try to create an entire subgenre of pornography that imitates that kind of style. And it's also just oftentimes like a very tongue in cheek, but nonetheless, like, you know, new way to kind of get an audience or to like make a splash of sorts. But I'm wondering then specifically, because the work that you did for Queer Space and Building Sex, it it touches on so many different aspects of sexuality, gender, gender identity. And I'm using already terms that I don't think were necessarily in existence, at least outside of the critical theory discussion around the late 90s, or if they were, they were kind of more emergent and less available in the mainstream. So, and because it's touching on all of those aspects and things that are in sometimes like debating between whether it's sex, whether it's sexuality, whether it's gender, whether it's gender identity, all these different discussions, is there something that you would explicitly revise in how you kind of treat these three breakdowns of sex being male, female, queer? That is, is that basic framework being changed in these kinds of ideas for you? Well, as I said, I think when you get down to the brass tacks, the basic reality of it, it's still a goddamn sexist, homophobic profession and discipline. And I can't get around that. It is astonishing. It is, of course, even more of a racist discipline. The percentage of African-American architects is is just in, in any other profession. If we had a percentage this low, we would have the Justice Department on our back. I don't know how that has not happened. It's just just astonishing. And maybe it shows how little people care about architecture. And the numbers are slightly better for Hispanic and for Asian. But it's just incredible that we are still confronted with this kind of a situation. 40 years after, 50 years after women's liberation. So I, I just can't 
get beyond that fact, I have to say. I think, and your point is definitely well taken. You had the point, you had the opportunity to kind of flesh out these ideas, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> in the course of the while back, the issue that was raised with Zahadi's Qatar Stadium, that people were ac- accusing it of looking like a vagina. And of course you had, <laughs> and you had this um, quite apt response on Architect's blog about how patently absurd that is, but how it also kind of reinforces this assumed dichotomy between gendered architectures as if it if it has a hole in it, as Zaha Hadid said, it has it looks like an architect it looks like a vagina is completely ridiculous because no one would ever make the same criticism. Oh, it's a skyscraper that looks like a phallus. That's kind of seen as, well, that's not even worth commenting on. So clearly you had a chance to kind of bring up these issues again. But I wonder if you are also familiar with the oncoming exhibition, uh, Playboy Architecture. Has this come across your radar? Yeah, I saw I saw the description of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, the, the influence of Playboy, again, did not take place on a very high level. It was Barbarella architecture. It was shag carpets and curving conversation pits. So again, I think we have to be very careful not to overestimate it. Aaron, this is Donna. I would like to jump in a little and go back to this. Uh, you mentioned these porn sites that are things like Sketch Sketch or something where it's uh, sort of like a college boy fantasy. I, and I can't help but think about McMansions and how <laughs> we, we architects constantly argue that McMansions are what the public thinks they want and that somehow either we're not doing a good job or, or maybe we're not at fault, but we're, somehow the public is not asking for better design. And I wonder if there's a relationship to that with pornography. And what I would point to is the woman, and I'm forgetting her name, but we'll put it in the show notes. There's a a woman who runs a website called Make Love Not Porn, which is talking about how sex is wonderful and people love it, but pornography is very much a performance that people then compare themselves to. Like you would compare yourselves to the Joneses that young teenagers these days now are, are more and more emulating what they do see in porn without ever actually understanding that sex is not exactly like porn, you know, that, that, that sex is a, is a different world entirely. And I'm wondering if there's a very clumsy relationship to be made there between what people think they want versus digging a little deeper and finding what they actually really want and having someone like a professional designer to guide that. I don't, I don't know if maybe I'm just being too clumsy. I don't know. I mean, I think it's a question of fantasy. What's interesting about sketch, sketch sex or sketchy sex is that I was astonished when I looked at it, and it's basically the ideas they rent a house or a McMansion that looks <laughs> completely furnished and standard, and they have these all these guys going at it, serially dropping in, unprotected, just nonstop in the sketchiest way you can possibly imagine. So I went, this, this can't really be true. So I Googled around, as one does, and of course, it turns out that the whole thing is, is staged. So there's, you know, there's a guy bent over a kitchen counter with a lineup of guys having their way with him one after the other. And this actor points out that it's, if you look carefully, it's actually only three guys who just keep going in and out and changing their clothes and they've all been tested. (laughs) You know, the the whole thing is, is just a setup. But what is disturbing to me about that, of course, is that it says that, you know, if you're a young kid in Iowa who finds a site, you're not going to know it's staged. And I think that you both would think that everyone lives in a McMansion and that you can have unprotected sex and there are no consequences. And I have no idea whether they're connected, but there are two messages that are indeed both rather troublesome, though maybe also both reflections of reality. And yet then we have we have people like Kink.com, who we had the, the article on today, who, as you said, Amelia, are very much 
sex positivity. I mean, this is good educational, intelligent discussion and presentation of sex. So, I mean, it's not like there aren't good resources out there for people who want to find either good design or good sex. But somehow it's much easier to make a McMansion that looks like a a classical Greek temple than it is to actually design something that is thoughtful and as intellectually resolved as good design, including Greek classical temples, can be. Dan, I totally think you're you're onto some neat little analogy here, at least if it's between like any type of mainstream, ticky-tacky idea of whatever a thing should be, being the kind of mainstream, the horrible pornography that we see satirized in something like Boogie Nights, like comes out in like the 90s or so of like, suddenly you have VHS tapes and all this stuff can circulate, whereas before it might have been seen as, or actually classified as illegal, versus having some kind of like design niche that is that is actually your business that you can fulfill through kind of showing that to the world and getting a bigger demand. The case with kink.com, there was a piece that Nicholas wrote, an interview with someone who worked for the overall organization and is involved in not only the art direction of these actual pornographic films that are being made under the auspices of kink.com, but also runs the institution of the Armory, which is the historic San Francisco building where all of these films are made. And the interesting thing about the Armory is not simply its kind of incredibly imposing and significant presence in the city of San Francisco as a historic structure, but also how it's been opened up to the greater community, both as an educational tool for public tours and for just general sex positivity in the community so that they're not, you know, that creepy neighbor. (laughs) But instead, they're really an institution that people use and uh, can learn something from. But then they are also, you know, this soundstage, they have sets and they have to produce their content there. So there's a nice um, aspect to the actual historical preservation issue going on in that building, that it's this old historic building that needs to be respected, while also <laughs> in taken in specific areas uh, used for producing this specialty pornography. So I think that that interview is really fascinating because it, we, you know, we, we kind of inadvertently ended up with a larger share of pornography related sex issues than we initially intended in the course of, you know, planning this editorial. But I think it really does give an interesting aspect or, or a comparison to the profession of any design professional, because they're in the end, people working in the art direction or in the in the process of producing these films for whether it's kink.com or something like Cocky Boys, our impression was that these producers are really concerned with not just like the look as in what they're trying to get their viewers, but the actual design quality and the creative quality of these videos. And they often feel like the quality of those are less appreciated by an audience who's otherwise, you know, completely able to get all this content for free and or extremely cheap elsewhere without paying whatever premium that that design focus might give them. So I I don't think it's too much of a stretch to kind of like make the comparison towards the the architect who just wants their <laughs> their design ideas to be respected and paid for versus these people involved in the production of these videos that are wanting the same. Aaron, you know, it was interesting when we were when we were, I was thinking about you coming on today and talking, I and the question that was asked is, you know, how have things changed in the past uh, 20 or so years. And I thought you would say, well, this discussion, I thought you were going to come on and say, well, gay and trans community have been having this discussion all along. Welcome to the, welcome to the discussion, the cisgender population, you know, finally getting with the program. And I think, you know, I think your answer, I mean, really brought back the reality or your response really brought back the reality of the situation just beyond the immediacy of this moment in particular, where we're getting these, uh, 
const- we were getting barraged by these ridiculous Republicans in various states creating laws about things that have no basis in any kind of factual argument and further endangering um, a population of people that has been marginalized for so long when, you know, no one's lashing out at people, you know, having sex at the at ball games. You catch them on TV. There's people having sex at, at baseball games. Someone's having, you know, was caught having sex at uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral. You know, seems to be that that the idea of uh, public sex seems only <laughs> palatable to straight people when they have it in their cars or they have it somewhere in a park. Or and but with the trans and gay community, it seems it's still the idea is that bathhouses and bathrooms are places where gay men and trans men and trans women pick up or prey on a vulnerable community. What do you think about? I mean, that is is in our society today and where we are right now. Well, I have to say that one of the contributions that gay men and women made, I believe, was to take places into which they were exiled because they could not have sex at home. Let's not forget that Mm -hmm. this is not happening because gay men and women are weirdos who want to go out and have sex in public. It happens and happened because gay men and women could not have sex at home. Let's let's remember that central fact. And as they went to try to find others who shared their desires, they wound up discovering edges of the city and holes in the city, which is to say places like the Brambles in Central Park or the piers and public bathrooms as places where they could fulfill the desires that they could that were exiled from what were considered to be the appropriate places to fulfill one's carnal desires. And in so doing, they spearheaded a reevaluation of both the aesthetic of those places, something, by the way, which Rem Kolhas pointed out in the uh, recent Biennale, as well as the the literal places and the emergence of cruising grounds followed by gay bars often were then the harbinger for settlement of those areas by queer men and women, and that then led to gentrification. Since that is no longer an issue, we're not seeing that particular contribution, and I do think it was a contribution, and we're also not seeing the contribution that the glory days of the largest, most elaborate gay discos made, Studio 54 and its ilk, which brought a huge amount of technology together to create these incredibly explosive environments, you know, fulfilling uh, the Venturi's desire for an electronic expressionism in a three-dimensional form. That's all gone. And now, like everything else, it's suburban, which means it takes place in McMansions or in apartments, and it takes place in social media. There's uh, what's, uh, Grindr and there's Tinder, right? So there, that is how people meet. So again, the particular contribution that this group of people made to the development of a particular quality uh, in our urban environments is, is largely gone. And I think it's analogous to some of the other groups in our history who have made significant contributions to 
spatial arrangement because of their exile. And what I think is also important when I make that analogy is to understand that we shouldn't romanticize what is lost. So only in the last 15 to 20 years have there been studies made, for instance, about the particular nature of spaces that developed under slavery and were developed by African-Americans within the, the constrained spaces that they were given. The fact that those are gone obviously is not something that we need to mourn, but that does not take away from the fact that we can examine and learn from the particular discoveries and innovations that were uh, made there. We also had a piece on the site written by Julia Ingalls about the spaces that were designed throughout a wide stretch of history specifically to accommodate sex, sex of all different kinds. And she kind of charts a, a wide arc from Nero's love palace, uh, you might say, to the love hotels of Japan, as well as these more novel so-called, I believe they were called like sex driveways or sex garages in Switzerland, I believe. And these, so basically places that were designed to accommodate either explicitly or implicitly in the case of designing for or allowing for populations that had to be covert about their activities, but places that were kind of understood as this is where we can go to have sex, which is something that, of course, architects are designing for constantly, perhaps maybe just with not the same explicit condoning. So Aaron, I'm I'm wondering, based on your writing and your perspective on all of this, do you have more of a an idea or a, perhaps a motivation as to why you think architects should, or whether you think they should at all, think about sex more explicitly when, when it comes to actually design? I, I'm not so sure, because I think that uh, sex happens wherever it happens, unless it's constrained. I have to say that this is, that things like the sets on kink.com and love hotels has never been something that interests me that much because it just seems like uh, fantasy escapism that happens whether you're playing video games or having sex. And it's just, it's not particularly interesting to me. I would note that the love hotels, again, exist because in Japan, given the dearth of uh, private space and the very constrained schedules that people had or have, this was the only way for young couples to get away and enjoy each other. So I think, again, it was a special situation. But I really, quite honestly, have not made a study of this because it's, it just seems to me, again, like just bad architecture, the kind of architecture that does not confront or frame our relationship to each other as human beings, but rather tries to subsume it into some fantasy. You were talking about pornography as about, or Donna's talking about pornography as role-playing and fantasy that takes away from the reality of it. And to me, this is the architectural equivalent of that. It takes all of the fantasy and all of the freedom to act out of the situation. I completely think that based on what we've spoken about before, that that completely aligns with how these spaces have been organized. They're escapist, they're escapist opportunities, which is why we had this other piece um, published recently under our screen print series featuring a segment from Harvard Design Magazine from their family planning issue, where the writer, who I believe is um, an architecture professor at Pratt, Ava Diaz, she wrote a piece called Soft Architecture, where she profiles or has a specific kind of observation and 
thought process around the so-called limp dick house, yeah. which was a, so far as the architect Mark Mills has explained, that it is something that is specifically about these notions of fatherhood and like inability to be virile in the course of fatherhood and also just having a house that literally looks and evokes the idea of a limp penis or a flaccid penis. And this, she has this very playful and very, I think, good balance between not being too self-serious, but also gathering a lot of ideas around family and fatherhood and the, and the family unit and whether or not that these kind of normal, so-called normal familial balances can be maintained over the course of the 21st century. And then how the domestic space should show that, like how much of the domestic space should be that escape that the other places that we've discussed are kind of aspiring to and how much of it should be an honest representation of kind of the sexual status of the people living inside. And I think it's a really interesting piece too, because the actual architecture is always at the heart of the conversation and the discussion where she also brings up how in the creation of these forms that from the outside, you know, look like so-called limp dick. In the inside, there are these so-called also like yonic spaces of having either interiors that, as we were discussing before, have that kind of stereotypical so-called feminine quality or that there are these channels like a vaginal canal of sorts. So I think it's a really interesting piece and just a really excellent take on um, a lot of these issues that we brought up already. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's also, again, a very specific case. It reminded me of uh, the house Stanley Tigerman did in, um, I guess it was in Michigan on the shore that um, I think was called the Daisy House that looked like a penis. Uh, and two balls in plan, including the uh, the semen dripping off the front of the penis as steps leading down to the shore. You know, this is architecture parlante, and there's a long tradition of it. And again, it's just, it's not really, I'm afraid to say, what interests me. It might have had a very interesting relationship with uh, this person's own psychological coming to terms with life as a married man. But I'm interested in architecture that has an active relationship with how we develop relationships with other human beings in the world around us. I am not interested in architecture that pretends to be something else or that tries to speak when it is mute, that tries to be a body when it is not a body. And I'm sorry, it just has never been something that has been of, of particular interest to me. Can I just return a little bit, Aaron, uh, to what you were talking about before? I, I started to think about the politics of the situation a little bit more deeply, and because you present it in such a very um, interesting way. It seems like, politically speaking, Black Americans are tired of asking for things, and now they're saying, we're, we're, we are full citizens of this country, and we're going to demand that you make changes. And the way uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has really articulated and created a voice and co-opting space, either, you know, attacking um, or going to political rallies and and even demanding those same things from people of who generally they would agree with. And you talked about you mourn the loss, but you don't want to return to. And I thought one of the things that I was remembering during the discussion around gay marriage was that some more politically active people were like, we don't want that as an issue. Once we start becoming more like heterosexuals and kind of we will we'll kind of soften, we'll lose our edge, we'll lose our, our desire to kind of keep uh, politically charged and politically active and maintain that political space. 
it seems like the one thing that seems missing from the discussion around uh, gender politics is when you talked about it before, women still don't have majority of practice. How do we as architects start to force that issue and so that we can help or even make it so that we're not asking for permission or women aren't asking for permission for equal pay. They're actually taking the space and taking the mic and, and controlling the, uh, the, the, the language and the, the public dialogue around that. That's a really good question. And that's something that I keep scratching my head about it because it bothers me. And obviously, if it was a simple situation, we would have done something about it. At least I'm optimistic enough we would have done something about it. And I'm not sure what is to be done. I think that Certainly, it is a question of time, and we need to develop more role models. That's without a doubt, and that is beginning to happen. I also think that changes in technology that are taking the power away from a construction industry that is still very much based on macho culture will also help. And I also think that we should not forget that we need activism in terms of labor laws, the kind of uh, family leave policies and the kind of health policies that have enabled women in Europe, for instance, to be able to pursue careers as well as family life or is something that is sadly lacking in this country. So those certainly would be contributing factors, but there is still, I think, this deeper issue of culture. And I remain convinced that as long as we remain addicted to the idea that architecture is about the production of autonomous objects that are promissory notes for a utopia that need to be as ideal as possible, as large as possible, and as monumental as possible, lasting for the ages, we will associate architecture with values that, for better and worse, we still think of as masculine, and we therefore will exclude uh, 50% of our population. You know, we've had a, uh, one of our, we've had a guest on, Susan Surface, who, who helped launch a, a petition to get, to talk about uh, gender, it's not gender, I don't think the word's gender neutral anymore, but gender neutral toilets for the lack of uh, my recollection, and trying to push that as an issue within state building codes. And the one thing that I'm realizing now is that when you talk about not enough women in the profession not representing, I think to the larger point, the fact that Texas is actually using building codes to limit where or limit Planned Parenthood facilities and when we can get uh, health choices. And now we're seeing some discussion around, do we need to change building codes so that, and I can see this happening again with, with trans men and women and starting to see, it seems like women need to get involved. We need to push women out there to kind of help craft building codes and so that they, so that we can't get some lazy ass politician then putting it back on us and being our responsible well, we help craft these things it seems like that that's a, a good place for us to start as well do you not think that uh, yeah i think in general being more active about building codes would be a, a very good thing for uh, for architects it, it is interesting i think that the the I, I noted as well the texas move on planned parenthood which i believe is also being pursued in ohio it might be Indiana, but maybe I think it's Ohio. I think that's a more positive thing for architects to do would be to somehow think about the design of public bathrooms that in their very design would take away some of the associations people might have with danger 
or with gendering. And that to me would be a, a very interesting project to take on. So again, what interests me is not just ameliorative actions that we can take, but rather what is the root of these, the kind of gender lading that goes into our designed environment. In the conclusion for your text, Building Sex and Queer Space, you kind of proposed queer space as the solution or potential improved reality on the current reality of having these either exclusively female or exclusively male spaces or architectures. And in those texts, you don't propose, you explicitly state, like, you don't have a clear idea of what the actual design for such a queer space might entail. But I was wondering, based on what you just said about the, about the trans issues in relation to bathroom design, do you have any other clear idea since you've written those texts of like how perhaps just what the goals might be or how to better conceptualize what a queer space might actually be? I think that what a, a queer space might be, and I, I would say that, that my interest for a long time in terms of aesthetics has been in things that don't look weird, but look strangely familiar, to quote the title of an exhibition at the, at, in Minneapolis many years ago, that sense that you design something that is normal but deformed. I am interested in further developing theories about this. I've just been in correspondence with a, a friend of mine, Ladislav Sigmund Lerner, who is an architectural historian in Prague, who's done significant work on the work of uh, Jan Kutera, and interested in taking some of the work that he's done and generalizing uh, theories of strange-making. So people like Michael Baxendahl have developed elaborate theories of causality within art history. What would interest me would be to develop theories of acausality or deformation in architectural history. The other issue, though, to, to be more direct about what we could do in terms of removing some of the dichotomy between masculine and femininely coded or laden spaces is to make our public spaces more sensual and our interiors more clear to develop ways of creating more of a relationship between inside and outside that breaks through the barrier of architecture. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated now living in Frank Lloyd Wright for a year and realizing that around a technological and social core, he developed spaces from the inside out to the landscape with the, the building dissolving as much as possible in his best architecture. And those kind of strategies uh, do interest me a great deal. Aaron, um, when you have your free time and you're not uh, busy lecturing and being uh, head of the program there at Talius, and <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what uh, particular interesting books have you been uh, kind of latching on to lately? Well, what I'm currently reading is a book that uh, relates to where I am. It's called The Water Knife by Pechka Lupi. And it's a, I, I have a fondness for sort of William Gibson-esque uh, cyberpunk science fiction. And this is a eerily familiar seeming story of a phoenix of the not too distant future in which the water has disappeared and global climate change has caused giant desertification, which means that uh, the whole community and the whole country, in fact, is breaking down. It's a fascinating book. Uh, and then next up after that, I just downloaded volume five of uh, Knausgaard's My Struggle. I'm looking forward to 
getting back into that strangely minute, detailed work world in which a walk down a suburban street in Norway in the 1970s can be endlessly fascinating and troubling. So I am looking forward to that. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing those. And we'll, we'll link to them on posting for the episode so listeners can find it. But Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and talking about this with us. I'm very happy to do it. Thank you. Great to talk to you, Aaron. Thanks so much to our special guest co-host, Aaron Betsky, and thanks to everyone for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, we are at ARC Sessions on Twitter, or you can also send us an email to connect at arcconnect.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Also, we're now available on Google Play Music, if that's your bag. Look out for our next one-to-one episode, released each Monday. Next week, we'll be featuring Amale Andraus, Dean of Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. Until next week!